welcome to Blue Notes On Air. Join us as we chat with experts, analysts and commentators from the Asian region about business, culture and economics. Focus on this as a business risk and a business opportunity, because this is where people will make money or lose money over the next 20-30 years. And if you do that and you forget about politics, it's fine. Today, ANZ's Paul Orton chats with former Bank of England Director Dr Paul Fisher about green regulation, targets and climate risk in the financial services sector. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Paul, welcome to Blue Notes. Uh, we spoke about 12 months ago when you were last here in Australia and the focus on that conversation was about the Financial Stability Board's task force on climate-related financial disclosure. Those of us who are active in the space have learnt the acronym very quickly now, TCFD. Um, before I ask you what's happened in the last 12 months, could you just give a very short background as to what is the, what, what, what's the focus of the TCFD and what's its purpose? It, it comes from the G20's Financial Stability Board uh, as a mitigant to the risk of sudden falls in asset prices causing financial stability problems. Uh, this is a tail event. Nobody's saying it will happen. But there is a risk that something like the fossil fuel sector collapses one day and that collapses asset prices, equity prices and so on all fall and that will be a financial stability risk. So the idea is that if you can get more disclosure from companies about what their exposures are to carbon, then people can price the risks of that sort of event in better. So you're less likely to get jumps in asset prices and if those jumps do happen they can be repriced more accurately and so the, the movements will be less. So the idea is more information out in the market means you have a more robust financial system to shocks that are linked to that, that information. So when we last spoke, fair to say that the TCFD was relatively new. What's been the main developments in the past 12 months? I think a couple of things. First of all, a lot more large companies have signed up as supporters for the thing. It started off with about 100 CEOs actively supporting there's now over 500 organisations actively supporting, including about 450 private companies, uh, and getting on towards 40 Australian companies w- within that. So there's a lot of momentum behind it. Everybody's working on it. Progress is not rapid because it turns out to be quite difficult to work out what your risk exposures are. Some things are relatively easy. If you want to say what your governance is, you can should be able to write that down pretty quickly. Strategy... Once you've got one, is not difficult to, to disclose. Risk management can be difficult and awkward to describe, but the financial targets and metrics and what the impact is on your company of your exposures or under different scenarios, that is challenging because it has to be forward-looking, not backward-looking and data-based. And people are trying to work out how, how to do this. And there's a whole industry growing up to learn how to do scenario analysis um, properly. So not many people have yet got that pinned down correctly. And so do you think that uh, advancing thinking and understanding and consistency with respect to the targets and the metrics will be at the key uh, item of focus over the next 12 months? It, it certainly will for financial firms. Um, the TCFD did a status report in September. Not many people seem to be aware of it, but it's got some interesting takeaways. And one of the takeaways was that financial firms are relatively good on those governance strategy risk management bits and less good on the targets and metrics and the financial impact. Uh, Non-financial firms were relatively good on setting targets and metrics. And if you're a widget maker, you can talk about how much energy you're using to make widgets. But they're less good on the strategy and governance side. So there are differences across, across sectors. 
but it's um, it's coming on. No, what nobody's very good at is saying here's a two degree transition scenario, and this is what that does to the financials of our firm. Not many people, if they know that, they're not saying. <laughs> uh, but that's actually where you need to get to. You say, if the economy develops as it should do, what's that going to impact on me? Uh, that's a tough question to ask and to answer, and even tougher then to disclose. You mentioned at the outset that in the last 12 months we've moved from about 100 companies disclosing or seeking to focus on what the TCFD means for their businesses up to in the order of 500. It's still voluntary. I know there's been a lot of discussion within the market, and we've seen that in the trade press, that some people believe it should be made mandatory. Given your level of focus on this and the the types of discussions you're having, what's your view on that? I've always thought it would end up being mandatory, right from the word go. Even before they reported, I thought it would end up being mandatory for two reasons. One is that if it's voluntary, those with a good story to tell will be very happy to do so. Those who have a bad story to tell will try not to, or they will massage the numbers to look better than they are. And if you don't have standards or rules which come with legislation, then you're not going to be able to stop that happening. Uh, The other reason is it was private sector-led, so you have a set of private sector recommendations with general endorsement from most of the world's large companies. Well, why wouldn't you put that into your rules? Um, what's the political cost of doing so if you can find legislative time so and then within Europe we are seeing some push for this to happen uh, two ways in London I was on the green finance task force and we recommended that this be we we said this was already implicit in the various reporting regulations there are Uh, it should be made explicit by the various reporting agencies that control those rules. So we're hoping they'll do that. We don't know yet quite what the response will be, um, but it's possible that we'll do that. And in Europe, we said the EU should endorse the TCFD, uh, and it's actually being progressed through being included in the non-financial reporting directive, which is where everything outside the company accounts actually gets determined. So that almost certainly is going to happen in Europe as a whole. And if that gets through legislation before May of next year, it will automatically be in UK legislation as well anyway. Um, some question about what the timing is. And if anything, rather than push back, the European Parliament is trying to extend our recommendations, uh, making it more encompassing, encompassing more firms. So it's recognised, I think, that uh, European, both European countries and, and European companies, and certainly also their investor base, is at the forefront of this. Given this is your third time to Australia in three years, you're starting to understand how the Australian market is responding to this. What's your view on on the approach of the Australian regulators in taking this up? The the regulators here are doing fine. They're braver. In in Europe, we do not get the political pushback. All the governments pretty much signed up. They encourage. The governments aren't necessarily doing as much themselves as they should be but they're giving free licence and rein to the regulators to push on and do this within the financial sector. Governments generally don't like doing the negative um, stuff and dealing with the risks. They like to promote green and positive things. So they're quite happy for this this agenda to be pursued by regulators. Here you haven't got that national political support, but APRA did stick their hands up uh, last year to say this is a material financial risk. We expect our firms to do something about it. Um, that caused a fuss, but it was the right thing to do uh, and, and good on them for pursuing it. Uh, that controversy seems to have died down, uh, as far as I can see. Other regulators in other places are also now putting their heads above the parapet. 
Um, two examples in Europe, the European Central Bank, previously very fixated on monetary policy, hadn't said anything on climate. Lev now said it's one of the top 10 risks for supervised firms, and they expect firms to do something about it. Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, which has been a bit behind the Bank of England, they've got their first working paper out for consultation on this topic. So the regulators don't necessarily move quickly, and they are silent until they are ready to move, and then you'll suddenly find they've got a policy paper out there which is pushing it. I know the RBA are following it quite closely, even though they haven't said very much. They talk regularly to APRA about it and are well on top of the uh, of the subject. Um, so I think the regulators here are doing quite a good job, um, given the national political scene. And then what's your sense of how um, Australian business is, is, is doing? It's certainly a topic of focus, increasing focus, I think, at boards. Uh, it's quite hard for me to tell. All I, I do talk to most of the banks, and they're all pretty positive. Um, but in terms of real business, of course, we talk to a, a, um, a biased sample of those who are positive about the topic. So you're never quite sure what's happening with the ones we're not talking to. Uh, but there's a lot of interest, um, a lot of confusion. Uh, and the most helpful message we give people is just forget about the politics, forget about the emotion and whether this is a socially useful thing or not. Focus on this as a business risk and a business opportunity because this is where people will make money or lose money over the next 20, 30 years. And if you do that and you forget about the politics, it's fine. People can just get on, they, they will do the right things. We'll get 80-90% of what we need in terms of climate change if people just see this as a standard business issue like all of the others. And people seem to find that helpful. That, that sort of clears the air and clears the minds for them. And I can't tell them what to do about it. I can only say you need to do something and what you should do is forget about the politics. And that's what's, that's what's helpful. And that applies to investors like um, the super funds um, all the way through to real economy companies. So coming to banks, I mean, based on the reporting that, that you've seen both in Europe and elsewhere... Do you think it's better for banks to report on what they've done rather than what they say that they will do when it comes to managing carbon-related risks? Um, I think you, you probably need both. Um, and why not at the moment? You're trying to... Um, why do you disclose these things? You, you, you want to genuinely reveal what your risks are, but also you want to improve your reputation in this field. So you, if you say what you will do, of course, you then have to do it. Otherwise, somebody's going to hold you to account and say... You, so it's a little bit of a hostage to fortune um, if you promise something and you haven't delivered it. But, hey, why not? It's, it's one of the best ways to bind in your successes, um, apart from anything else. You, you set out a plan and you set out some targets and then management after that are held to to try and try and hit them and if you you need to set stretching targets um achievable but stretching is is the right way to go and then you'll make yourself do it is it is is it your sense that when people look at frameworks like the tcfd they're overly focused on risk and risk management and actually lose sight of the opportunities that can happen my observation is that the um this, this world is divided into two groups, people who are promoting green opportunities and people who are looking at the risks. And they're different groups and they're different agendas. It's not a continuous spectrum. Uh, but whenever we talk to the financial sector, we try to stress the opportunities as well. Because if you only talk about the downside risks, people get bored very quickly. It goes off to the risk management um, people. We, we need this to be embedded in the whole of the business. And... Banks always are there to finance the change in the economy. That's, that's their role. And they will do it here because this is where they'll make money. 
And the risk of the political agenda is that it holds people back from doing what they would otherwise normally do, which is finance the change in the economy. Uh, and so this just needs to be front and centre as an opportunity for all the businesses within a bank, for example. They should be focused on this. What can we do? What can we innovate? What markets are there, are there we can get into which create new lending opportunities? It, it, it does. It does. seems to me at times that people tend to forget that banks and the capital markets in general finance transition all the time in many different industries. For some reason, people are seeing this transition as perhaps somewhat different. People tend to think of the economy as being a static, with large employers, with fixed workforces that never change. Of course, that's not true. Over a 20- or 30-year period, famous names come and go. You know, it wasn't that long ago nobody had heard of Apple, um, Amazon and Google, and now they're some of the biggest companies in the world. And in 20 or 30 years' time, it might be a completely different set of names, whereas names like Kodak um, can suddenly go out of business because they miss a change in the market. And, and we get many instances of that as well. So... The economy is constantly changing. It's a truism in economics that you get rising employment steadily over time, but that's made up of two big numbers, a number of people losing work in declining firms and declining industries, and a larger number of people gaining employment in new industries and new firms. Uh, and that is that net um, difference which matters. Now, it can still be very unfortunate if somebody is in a declining industry, declining sector, they may lose a job and not be able to get, get one back. So... You need governments to put in social safety nets to look after the people who get left behind. That's an that's a, a absolute necessity. But otherwise, this process, continual churn in the economy, continual churn in, in employment, that's normal and natural and happens all the time. And we just mustn't stop it. We mustn't get in the way of that because that's when you get mass unemployment, is when you stop that happening. In well-intentioned uh, um, institutions who try to protect jobs, you, you protect the jobs which should be going, and you, what you actually want to do is protect the jobs that are yet to be by, by, by supporting them. I said at the start that Europe was at the forefront of thinking about climate risk and managing the transition, and that's probably being led by countries such as the Scandinavian countries, France and, uh, um, and the UK, uh, amongst other countries in Europe. So let, let me perhaps unfairly come to a question that is being reported on extensively here in Australia, and that's the impact of the um, of Brexit on the UK. Uh, how, if 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 that happens, if Brexit um, happens under some um, arrangement between the UK and the EU, how how do you see that impacting um, the mood of within Europe of pushing for climate risk, and perhaps the role that the UK's played, the leading role that's it's played. I hope it won't affect that, because, and I made this point at the recent meeting that we had at the European Commission, that climate change doesn't recognise political boundaries or borders, right? It's, it's just ever-present. And so I hope the, um, the leadership that comes from London, not just from English people in London, but from the international community that, that lives in London, uh, would be welcome to contribute to this debate going forward. Some of it may be politically sensitive to start with, but the high-level experts group was set up after the Brexit referendum, and six of the 20 places were Brits. Right. Um, and so they did not discriminate in, in that situation. They easily could have done. And um, so we, we hope that will go forward. Um, Brexit itself is, frankly, a, a short-term mess. Long-term, I don't think it makes that much uh, odds. We can be in or out, and, and uh, clearly. But the way we're going about getting ourselves out is not to be recommended, uh, is the honest, honest answer. Um, but long-term, it may well have happened anyway. Europe, England has never wanted to be part of a single country in Europe. 
uh, the European project is all about greater European integration and becoming eventually one country. I think that's where it has to go, otherwise it won't survive in its current current form. Uh, and I think Britain would always have found that a step too far. So the timing is clearly wrong. You didn't need to do it now. We had a perfect situation of being only half in. But if we're not half in, we have to be fully out, I think. Well, for those of us who are active in the sustainability debate here in Australia and elsewhere, we, I think we've been fortunate to have seen and gain the benefit of the leadership from Europe. So certainly from my perspective, I really hope that Europe on this issue at least remains cohesive and continues to drive that forward. And thank you very much for speaking to Blue Notes. I think it's been wonderful to hear about the developments over the last 12 months since you were here last. And I hope that it can only accelerate, that those developments, those positive changes can only accelerate over the next 12 months when we, when we look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks very much, Paul. Thank you for listening to Blue Notes On Air. Blue Notes On Air was produced by the Blue Notes editorial team with music by Kevin McLeod.